Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm very honored to welcome to the Core Principles Podcast the founder of Wall Builders, David Barton. How are you doing, David? Good well, Clay. Good to be with you, brother. Thanks for having me. You bet. Wanted to start off just asking the most basic question. What motivated you to start your organization, Wall Builders? You know, great question, uh, because Wall Builders is seen as very much a lot of it is historical organization. And so we do a lot more outside of that. We work with legislators and we work with teachers and we work with public policy and all sorts of things. But the history side is what's interesting because I grew up absolutely disliking history. I just, we just hated it. I stayed away from it. And so now we've managed to collect um, somewhere north of 100,000 documents from before 1812. And there's no way I would have seen that coming in, in younger days. But it was because what I was taught about in history in school, you know, I knew what I was taught. But when I finally started seeing original documents, it was so different than what my teachers had told me about history. And it was not even close. In, in many cases, it was opposite. And I'm going, no, wait a minute, I, that, that can't be. I mean, this is what my teachers told me, but I'm seeing the actual document. It says just the opposite. So really it, it, what got us going was finding some old stuff and then finding out that people really were interested in what actually happened in America. And certainly today, as we're looking at a cancel culture and statues of everything coming down, uh, it seems even more important. We just don't seem to know who we are as a people or why these guys were heroes at one point in time. We just lost knowledge. Well, I definitely want to ask you about some of what's happening now, but when you mentioned the the documents that you've been able to gather, I was really glad to get a chance to see that firsthand, and thank you for having me down there in Texas to, to look at those things. How did you amass such a treasure? You know, it's really, that, that in itself is kind of a fun story, because it was that as I was just finding these old historical documents, a couple of them, and they got me started. It got to where that as I was speaking across the country and we had all these requests. And back then with three kids, my wife, myself, we drove everywhere. So we got piled in a van and we just stayed on the road for months at a time. And in doing that, it got to where that going through Odunk, USA, Liberty Towns, just off the beaten path, I would stop at antique stores or I would stop at, at junk shops or Salvation Army thrift stores or whatever and would go in and would find some of the most amazing treasures. I went in a, a, in a kind of a thrift store one time up in Connecticut, and they had a big crate of, of leather books in the back, and it turned out to be the personal library of one of the founding fathers, and they were just selling it for five bucks a book back there. I was like, oh my gosh. So we started collecting um, things like that as we would drive, go from place to place. Why is it so important to preserve our heritage and our history? Um, and I, I would point to what's going on right now with the nation as a great example of why, because all the protests and all the, the, the damage we're seeing to statues is a great example. You know, in the name of fighting racism, uh, for example, in Minnesota, the protesters defaced a statue of uh, a memorial to three guys, and it was to honor those who had wrongly been lynched in racial lynchings. And they're tearing down the statue that's a civil rights statue. And then they go and tear down the statue of Frederick Douglass, the greatest civil rights leader in the 1800s. 
And then they tear down the statue of the Mass 54th, which is the breakthrough black regiment that got racial equality in the military. And, uh, I mean, they just keep going through it, and, and they don't know why. They, they, they just have to tear down statues because these guys are all racist. And it's interesting, we saw an interview over in London. They were tearing down the statue of, of um, Winston Churchill. And they asked, why are you tearing this down? Because he was a really bad guy. He was a racist, and he did all sorts of things, enslaving. Like, do, you, do you know who he is? Well, no, but I know he did bad stuff. Do, do you know he's the reason you're not speaking German today? I mean, they had no clue. And, and so we're seeing that all over the nation. And now it's turned into, over the last two weeks, uh, just anything that is Catholic, Protestant, religious, it's, it's under attack. Eleven churches have now come under attack. They burned the church of Junipero Cerro. It started back in 1771 in California. Junipero Cerro really is the guy who founded California. Um, Juan de Onate in El Paso, he's the guy who opened up the, the really the southwest part of the United States. I can point to a lot of things going on right now in the culture as good indications of why we should know our history, but how we don't know our history. Well, talking about that understanding and maybe lack of understanding, mm -hmm. I'm going to make some statements that seem to be gaining traction, particularly among young people who mm -hmm. are sadly miseducated. And I'm going to ask you, David Barton, to rebut or support these statements that I make based on principles that our founders or other important uh, leaders have championed throughout our history. All right. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Sounds like a fun game. It'll be a fun game. All right. So here's the first statement to respond to. Government should provide every person in this country with a living wage. If they do that and remain a free government, they will be the first government in the history of the world to do that. This is where you have lessons from other nations. Any government that is capable of providing you what you need is capable of taking everything you have. And so liberty is preserved by individual work and effort. I have a Jewish rabbi friend that has taught me so much. And he pointed out to me that in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, which presumably is the language God spoke to Adam and Eve in, he said, there are so many words you can't say in Hebrew. One is coincidence, because nothing's coincidence to God. God plans it all. But he goes through all these words, and, and one of the words you, you don't say in Hebrew is the word rights. You don't say right, you say responsibilities. And I'm intrigued with the fact the founding fathers said, for every right, there is a corresponding responsibility. Now, James Wilson, original Supreme Court justice, signed the Constitution. So we have a right to free speech, but we have a responsibility to be truthful when we speak. We have a right to keep and bear arms. We have a responsibility not to shed innocent blood when we do so. And so when you get focused on rights, you start becoming selfish. And when you become selfish, you lose the, you lose the hard work ethic and you lose the sacrifice that is necessary to understand freedom. And when everything is given to you, you'll no longer be a free nation. So I would take that first scenario, Clay, and say, any nation that's going to give you that, you're soon going to assume it's your right. You're going to lose your incentive for productivity, your incentive for creativity, your incentive for innovation, and it will become very, very quickly a mediocre nation and then an enslaving nation. Well, that's probably then a similar answer to the statement that health care is a human right and should be provided by the government. So I'll skip that one and go straight to the punchline that they really get to with that statement, which is abortion at any time is health care. Yeah, that is such a strange thing. And um, 
there, there's just such, in many ways, a twisted logic that arrives to that position. And I, I say that because historically looking, when I look at the arguments of slave owners to justify ownership of another person, they're very, very, very similar to the arguments made in my ability to kill someone else as part of my health care. What we did is we took quotes out of the Roe v. Wade case and quotes out of the Dred Scott case and started feeding them to people and said, can you tell which is Dred Scott and which is Roe v. Wade? And they could not tell the difference. They could not tell which was an abortion quote and which was a slavery quote because you have the same logic behind it. And, and that is that I don't recognize anything distinctly yours. I recognize everything on the basis of what I have. And so the way our, our founding fathers created the government, they, they started with with five principles in the Declaration. Um, there, there are absolute rights and wrongs. They call that the laws of nature, nature's God, and from that you can know truth. Uh, then they next said there is a creator, by the way. And then they said the creator has given each individual certain inalienable rights, and they identified about two dozen rights that didn't come from government, they came from God. And then the fourth point they made was that the primary purpose of government is to protect those inalienable rights. And the fifth point they made was that below uh, rights and morals, the people will have the consent of the governed. So we could vote on whether the speed limit should be 45 or 55, or if you're in Texas, it's 85. And we, we could vote that. But we couldn't vote on whether we could take someone else's life or whether we could take someone else's liberty, uh, whether rape was going to be a crime or not. Those are moral laws established by God and their rights established by God. And I, I can't take them away just on a majority vote. And so on that basis, that was one of the real problems with the Roe v. Wade decision was no longer do you have inalienable rights. We will decide who gets rights and who can exercise them. And, and it's flawed. And, and I say that even, you know, for me as a Christian, biblically, I, I believe the Bible addresses every issue in life. I, I think that by either principle or direct, direct statement, there's something that applies that we can learn from. And so I look back into the laws of Moses and we're going back thousands of years, and the laws of Moses had laws protecting, and these were all given, as Moses said, God gave me these on the mount, and they had laws protecting unborn life, even back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So this is something that goes all the way back to some of the first civil governments ever created, and our founding fathers, literally, when they created that concept of inalienable rights, they listed the right to unborn life as one of those rights. Uh, we actually have legal writings from James Wilson, the signer of the Constitution, who did the first law school in America, where the, he tells students, as soon as a woman knows that there's life within her, at that point, the government steps in to protect life because that's a primary responsibility of government is to protect the inalienable life or the inalienable right to life. Well, this was not intended as a rebuttal to that, obviously, because you and I didn't talk before about right. what we might talk about. However... Right. The next thing I wanted to state and have you respond to would sound like the young person's rebuttal to what you just said. And oh, that's it is great. This. That's great. It, it is this. Having standards of behavior based on anybody's religious beliefs is oppressive. What are religious beliefs? And can you find any behavioral standard in the world that is not embraced by some religion somewhere? And the answer is no. So it's not a matter whether you're going to have religious beliefs under morality. It's a matter of which religious beliefs you're going to have under morality. I, I did a paper not long ago on the Ten Commandments and how the courts in American history, including throughout the 1980s, were citing the Ten Commandments 
as the basis of our behavioral laws. And so one of the things we point out to young people is, you know what? The Ten Commandments really don't care whether you're religious or not. If you just live by those standards, you'll make a great neighbor. You know, theologically, I, I, I care whether you know God. But as a neighbor, if you just obey the Ten Commandments and not steal my private property and, and you won't take my wife and you won't kill me, you'll make a great neighbor, whether you believe in God or not. And, and so those standards are, are acceptable standards that have proven to produce the greatest level of freedom of any country in the world. And when you get into nations that are more secular, whether it be France or Germany, and, and, and I think a lot of the kids don't recognize the difference in nations. Um, but even today in France, I can't share my faith publicly with someone. It's called proselytization. It's a crime. I will go to jail. Uh, if I'm in Germany and try to homeschool my kids, I will go to jail. The government will take them away from me. If I'm in Scotland, from the time my child is born, uh, a government official will come in a hospital register and they will make all the major decisions for my child, including career, education, everything else. I just go around the world showing what's happening elsewhere. And they don't have the same Judeo-Christian standard we have. That Judeo-Christian standard has produced freedom and liberty in every nation that's used it. We're seeing um, nations like Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, others, Romania, uh, start to re-embrace those values, and they're becoming some of the freest nations, the most economically prosperous nations in Europe right now. Uh, seeing young nations in Africa re-embrace those, those principles that have been repudiated to coming back. And it's just historical. Wherever you see those principles applied, doesn't mean you have to personally believe them, but it does make a civilized society and a prosperous society uh, because of the general ethic it creates. However, David, some of uh, the young people today would, would come back at either of us or anyone else they were talking to and tell you this. Marxism is just about justice and equality and fairness. So we should try mm -hmm. it out. And my first question is, which Marxist books have you read? And generally it's memes. They've read memes and not books. Um, they've read none of Lenin's works. They've read none of Stalin's works. They, they've read none of the works, critical theory works. They generally have had memes. And that's what we find on socialism too, by the way. Um, statistically speaking right now, 75% um, of college students support socialism, 69% of millennials, and 41% of the entire nation supports socialism over the free market. Now, I have a very good national pollster friend. We do a lot of national polling. And he wanted to see if people really knew what they were talking about. So what he did was he took that 41% of the nation who said we support socialism. He went back and asked them additional 41 questions, 47 questions, and he didn't use the term socialism. He said, do you support greater government ownership of private property? which is key to socialism, but he didn't use the term. He said, do you support greater government regulation of private business? And he went through 47 trades that are always socialistic. And at the end, only 2% of Americans said they supported socialism once they knew what it was. All right. Well, we're going to switch gears. This is another statement that uh, a lot of folks seem to be making in memes and other ways. America was founded on slavery and perpetuated the practice of slavery. Sin is something that's universal to all humans. So we have yet to find any nation or any race that has not been both an enslaver and a slave, every, every one of them. So we started asking kids, who is the first nation in the history of the world to ban the slave trade and when did that happen? We point out the first nation in the history of the world 
to ban the slave trade was the United States in 1807. So we're number one in the world in stepping out to ban the slave trade. Then we ask, who's the first nation in the world to ban slavery? Well, the answer is England in 1833, William Wilberforce. But wait a minute, you mean no nation anywhere in the world banned slavery until 150 years ago? And they're shocked. There was 124 nations in the world at that time. America was the fourth nation in the world to ban slavery. And we did so in 1865. So now we are talking 150 years and we're the fourth in the world and we were in the top 1% of the world and fighting slavery. We're the only nation in the world where that whites went to war against whites and freed blacks as a result. So if you wanna talk about America's built on slavery, you've gotta say every other nation in the world was too, but guess what? America is one of the first nations to get out of it. We've got 94 nations today in the modern world that have not criminalized slavery. We have 40 million active slaves in the world today, 9.2 million in Africa, uh, Asia, other places. In the entire African slave trade from 1501 to 1875, there were 12.7 million Africans taken out of Africa on the transatlantic slave trade. We've got three times that many today across the world. And that was nearly 400 years of the African slave trade. Don't talk about America 200 years ago. Look around you and talk about what's going on right now. Oh, by the way, since we are talking about America, 1619 is not when slavery came to America. 1619, there was a, I believe it was a Spanish or Portuguese ship that was captured off the coast of Virginia that had slaves on the ship. Those slaves were brought ashore, but they did not become slaves. They became indentured servants, and within seven years, they owned their own property, they owned their own land, and they were all free. So that's not when slavery began. Slavery began when one indentured servant, Anthony Johnson, um, who was sponsoring other indentured servants, an indentured servant, to kind of explain, is like putting yourself up for collateral on a loan. You know, it's like if I want to take this this private rocket to Mars that they're they're having and advertising now, you know, it's five hundred thousand dollars. I don't have that. And I say, well, I'm worth about fifty thousand a year. So why don't you just? I'll work for you for ten years. That'll pay off the five hundred thousand. You let me go to Mars in your new rocket ship. It's an indentured servant. It is is putting yourself up for collateral for somebody else to pay a loan for you. So Anthony Johnson was a black man. He had um, five indentured servants. They were all seven-year contracts, I believe. And one of those guys, Anthony Johnson, that this black guy is so lazy, I'll never get my money back from him. So he went to court and asked the, the courts in Virginia to let him own that black man for life. He said, this guy will never be productive enough to pay off my investment. Let me own him. And they said, all right, you can own him. And so the first occasion of slavery in America, I think it was 1641, when Anthony Johnson went to court and, and have to, so it's a black on black slavery. And that surprises many people. But Carter Woodson, who is the father of black history in America, uh, he did the research showing that based on the 1830 census of the free blacks in South Carolina, 43% of free blacks in South Carolina own black slaves. 40% of Georgia free blacks own black slaves. So black on black was really common. Um, in the 16th century, there were more white slaves than there were black slaves. The first slave law in America is 1671, and it allowed you to own black slaves, white slaves, or Indian slaves. And by the way, at the 1860 census, the highest percentage slave owner of black slaves in America were Native Americans. The five major Native American tribes, 12% uh, of those tribes were black slaves. Among all Americans, only 8% of Americans owned slaves, but among Native Americans, much higher. So uh, when kids only hear one little bitty part of the story, 
they're going to be really ticked about America until you point out, no, it's not what you think. And by the way, of the 12.7 million slaves that were taken out of Africa in those actually 374 years, they didn't all come to America. I was with a young person this week, and we have leadership training right now, 18 to 25 young people. And one of the young people said, my professor just told me that all 12.7 million of those slaves came to America. No, 46% or 43% went to Portugal and Brazil. 26% went to British holdings. Um, you had 11% that went to Spanish holdings. America took 300,000 of the 12.7 million slaves. We had 2.4% of all slaves. We were one of the least receiving countries. That's not an excuse for doing it, but it's just that the notion that America is the only one that's ever done anything wrong, it's just, it's a bad notion. And so again, when we knew our history better, we weren't having the discussions we're having today. And all these things that I've mentioned are irrefutable documentable facts. They're, they're source to primary source documents. It's simple stuff. It's just that nobody knows it today. Now I wanted to ask you about current events just a little bit before we wrap up. We're in a current election cycle and the Democrats have nominated someone who cannot campaign. And they're effectively convincing a lot of people in America that it's perfectly acceptable that there should be no campaign because of the pandemic. Is there some historical context that uh, you can share that either supports or debunks that idea that this is just something we should think is normal? Clay, you keep you keep feeding me all these things I love talking about. We've never shut the world down over anything like this before. And so let me just put perspective on it. The mortality rate with COVID in America right now is four one hundredths of one percent. The worst place in America is New York City at four tenths of one percent. So they're 10 times higher. But let's go back to that national average of, of four one hundredths. For 400 years, every 15 years, we've had a medical pandemic. Uh, so whether it was smallpox, whether it was yellow fever, whether it was diphtheria, whether it was typhoid, whether it was the Hong Kong flu, the Asian flu, the Spanish flu, uh, whether it was scarlet fever, whether it was uh, rubella. Now, let's go back to the smallpox e epidemic of 1633. Mortality rate was 70%. 70% died in that one. Let's go to the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. Mortality rate was 25% in that one. We didn't shut anything down over that. I mean, it was just, and, and what we're seeing as a result, I'm from Texas. Right now, COVID in Texas is the 14th leading cause of death in Texas. There are 13 things that cause more deaths than COVID, and we've not shut down the state over those top 13 things. Why did we pick number 14 to shut it down? And even on top of that, right above COVID, if you're in Texas, you're twice as likely to die from septicemia as you are COVID. And most people don't even know what septicemia is, but that's like getting a scratch and getting blood poisoning. So if you're twice as likely to die from getting a scratch and getting blood poisoning as you are from COVID in Texas, and we haven't shut Texas down because people are getting scratched, and we haven't done that. So we are at an unprecedented time, and the fear that has been generated is unbelievable, the amount of fear that, that has come out. And as a result, we have seen, um, I've got so many friends in the legal profession, I've been involved in 11 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, and I've got a friend right now who's got legal action going in 40 states right now because all these constitutional rights have been attacked. Um, out of the five rights in the First Amendment, four of them have come out of attack by governors and mayors during this COVID thing. We've never set aside constitutional rights because of an alleged pandemic. 
Uh, we had the, the mayor uh, of Jackson, Mississippi saying, well, now the pandemic's here. Sorry, we're going to have to suspend the Second Amendment. You don't have the right to keep and bear arms anymore. But, well, wait a minute. What's, what does it have to do with Second Amendment? I'm disappointed, but not surprised. But if we knew even medical history in America, we would see that we've had it a whole lot worse than what we've got now. And we didn't take away rights or shut it down. Well, that's uh, a, a great snapshot of sort of where we are. And it leads to the, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about. I do appreciate so much, David Barton, that you've uh, come on the podcast. And uh, hopefully the listeners have learned, as I have, listening. Uh, so I'm going to ask you for, hopefully, some encouragement. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, uh, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, you use the word unprecedented, and it does apply in, in context, but the wisest man says everything has precedent of That's some right. sort. So can you offer us uh, in that context some assurance uh, with your perspective as a historian in particular American historian, that however tough times are, however bad it may seem, we do have reason to hope that we're going to come through this uh, stronger and and not uh, in the distant future, but in the nearer term. Yeah, uh, and and that's such a good verse, Ecclesiastes 1, about there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, we act like this is new, it's not. We've been through pandemics before, we've been through attacks on rights before, we've been through a lot of stuff. Um, so what kind of optimism can, can we draw from this? And I, I can point to several things that make me super optimistic. One is the way the American people have been responding to this. Um, we, we run an organization of about a thousand state legislators. So we get legislators in all 50 states that work with us, that we work with. And it's interesting since the end of February, when COVID hit, People are now suddenly aware of constitutional rights they have not been aware of in a long time, and they don't like seeing them taken from them. So that's why all this legal action in courts. But just looking from a legislative standpoint, since in February, there have been over 2,500 COVID bills introduced in state legislatures because state legislatures are going, wait, this is totally wrong. Um, you know, uh, what's considered a, a state emergency was supposed to last two to three weeks. It's supposed to be like a tornado or hurricane. Now we're talking three and four months um, in the state of Texas. Our, our governor is appropriating hundreds of millions of dollars without any authorization from the legislature. And Article one of the Constitution says that revenue bills have to start in the House of Representatives. Well, he's not the House of Representatives. So suddenly legislators are becoming conscious of what the Constitution says. They're wanting to return to it. People are becoming conscious of their rights. They're wanting to return to it. And despite the polarization that the media is really throwing at us, I mean, I don't care whether it's Fox or CNN, um, when you look at statues and you look at the riots, you look at all the stuff that's going on, you'd kind of think that the nation's kind of split maybe 40%, 40%, and 20% are just staying out of it. But it looks like a pretty big group on both sides, and it's not. I got polling last week that says only 10% of Americans support the cancel idea of taking down statues. 84% of Americans think that you should leave statues up and learn from them, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, All this thing about defunding the police, the single group that is most opposed to funding the police are black Americans, and and at a high rate. I mean, these are not not polls we're seeing in the news. And, And so when I look at that, I've got great optimism that the instincts of the American people are breaking the right direction on this. Thank you so much. 
David Barton, founder of Wall Builders. It's been my honor to have you on the Core Principles podcast today. And ladies and gentlemen, as you've listened to this podcast, I hope that you've come to understand what a tremendous resource Wall Builders is and the incredible work that David Barton has done over the course of decades, gathering original source documents and rediscovering the truth of the core principles of America's founding. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 11th of August, 1965, riots broke out in South Central Los Angeles. Those six days of mayhem, commonly called the Watts Riots because of a neighborhood in that area of the city, resulted in 34 deaths, over a thousand injuries, and more than $40 million of property damage and destruction. The spark that lit that explosion was the arrest of Marquette Fry for drunk driving. The white California Highway Patrol officer was alleged to have used excessive force against the African-American driver, and the presumption was that racism caused him to do so. But another cause was alleged, and that was poverty within the inner cities. In addition to the death and destruction, something else was a result of the Watts riots. The War on Poverty We have spent over $22 trillion on the War on Poverty over these 55 years, and the poverty rate has not fluctuated outside of a 4% band between slightly over 11% and slightly over 15% at any time during those 55 years. The principle is that the government is not the source of anything it provides, and government dependence is incompatible with liberty. We are charged by Almighty God to be charitable with those in need. We must not relegate our responsibility to the government. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July. L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.